Russia retaliated immediately by withdrawing from the Black Sea grain deal, right? They have blockaded Ukraine, have not allowed Ukraine to export its grain. When Russia first blockaded it, it sent food prices through the roof. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, July 19th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe to explain the latest Ukrainian blow against Russia, an attack on the only bridge connecting Russia to Crimea, an enormously important supply line for Moscow as they wage war in Ukraine. How will Vladimir Putin respond? Julia has the latest. And later, Eric Gardner and Ben Landy discuss the real reason the Hollywood Actors Union is so hung up on AI. We'll dig into all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by SleepMe comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy wednesday everybody welcome to the powers that be i'm joined today by julia yaffe for the latest on the ongoing war between russia and ukraine aka the russian invasion of ukraine on monday there was an explosion on the lone bridge that links russia to crimea which russia occupies and is a key supply route for Russian troops, supplies, fuel heading into Ukraine. Ukraine hasn't officially taken credit for this explosion, Julia. Mm-hmm. But is that the assumption that they're just still fucking with this bridge? Because remember, this bridge also, I believe, came under attack last fall. It's the same bridge, right? Uh, yes, exactly. It's the same bridge that was attacked in October, after which, as you recall, 
Putin and his army began a ruthless attack on Ukrainian civilian infrastructure and civilians. I mean, even more ruthless and brutal than we had seen in the first few months of the war. Mm-hmm. And the reason this bridge is important is, as you said, it is the only bridge linking Crimea to the Russian mainland, which is interesting because Russia has continues to stake this claim on Crimea, right? That it is a natural and historical part of Russia, mm-hmm. which again, in fact, it has only it was only ever part of Russia after the 18th century. And if you look at a map, it's only connected by land to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. When Russia illegally annexed Crimea in February and March of 2014, it became clear that there was a very good reason that Crimea was part of Ukraine and not Russia, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it became impossible to supply this peninsula with water, with food, with energy, and prices of all these things shot up, which is why Putin asked one of his old childhood buddies to build this bridge that was all kickbacks and fleecing, etc. And it's one of the only... Aside from ferries that go back and forth, it is the only real link to the Russian mainland, Hmm. which is also why Russia has been trying to hack a land route to Crimea, which is what they wanted to do in 2014, but were stopped outside of Mariupol and what they have succeeded so far in doing in this war. But again, you have this lone bridge that it's not just for supplying the peninsula with oil and troops and whatever it's also how russians get back and forth from the peninsula Mm -hmm. and it is also especially as russia has become increasingly isolated from the rest of the world and it has become harder and harder for russians to travel abroad for vacations uh, especially now in the summer months people go to crimea Crimea is a beautiful, beautiful place on the Black Sea. It has this Mediterranean climate and landscape. And uh, Ukraine allegedly hit this at peak kind of vacation travel time, right? Mm -hmm. It would be like blowing up a major, I don't know, the bridge between like mainland Florida and and, and Key West, at you know peak travel season. If, If there were also like, if Key West were also like an important military base. Yes. It reminded me a little bit of the bridge that goes uh, over part of the Chesapeake Bay in Norfolk, Virginia. Just a very long span uh, Mm -hmm. right on a port. It's beautiful. Also, like for other southeastern people, it reminds me of the bridge going Mm -hmm. to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Just a Mm -hmm. very long, pretty bridge. Not super high above the water. But again, when I first saw this headline, and we should mention that that two people were uh, apparently killed, reminded me of the bridge attack last year. Looked it up. Same bridge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it makes me think like this is one of the most vulnerable things about the Russian invasion, which is just that this is the supply line on land, at least. And mm-hmm. so if you go look at video of this explosion, there's a good video on the New York Times website for anyone who wants to look. It doesn't look like the I-95 <laughs> bridge collapse near Philadelphia, where the bridge the section is completely gone. It looks kind of fixable, actually, and not that bad. Um, why mm-hmm. doesn't Ukraine just blow out the whole thing? Is it just like really well protected? It's hard to do. They tried to do the same thing in October, and they messed up the rail ties, and they were eventually repaired. This time, they've blown out part of the 
not the rail traffic section, but the car traffic section. Hmm. And it looks like one of Putin's deputy ministers said that that part can just cannot be fixed. But again, it's well protected. It's part of an area that Russia controls. And one time they drove an 18-wheeler full of explosives over it, and it didn't do the job mm-hmm. fully. This time it looks like they were unmanned sea drones, essentially, unmanned you know, watercraft that swam up to it and blew it up, and they didn't take out the main support, et cetera. It's hard to do mm-hmm. because this is a well-fortified installment, and... It's very strategically important for Russia, and Russia now controls the Black Sea. I mean, in addition to the illegal annexation of Crimea, this invasion and the land route that Russia has hacked, thereby controlling, you know, where the Azov Sea spills out into the Black Sea, they now control the Black Sea. So it's hard Mm -hmm. to get, you know, anything you're going to get to penetrate that is going to be a bit smaller and harder to detect. Mm -hmm. It's also why, for example, Russia retaliated immediately by withdrawing from the Black Sea grain deal, right? They have blockaded Ukraine, have not allowed Ukraine to export its grain. Ukraine exports its grain to some of the poorest countries in the world, in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. in Africa, and Southeast Asia. And when Russia first blockaded it, it sent food prices through the roof. And Russia has blamed this on Ukraine and on Western sanctions before. But again, it's interesting that this happened on Monday, which was the last day of the grain deal. It was set to expire today. And Putin said, we're done, we're out. And again, all of this is because Russia has come to control the Black Sea. And for everybody who says that this is just a regional conflict, you see that the Black Sea Basin, it affects a lot of other countries. And what comes out, what goes in and comes out of the Black Sea affects the wider world and wider geopolitics. So again, this is a very important part of the world. I have two quick, broader questions for you mm-hmm. about the state of this conflict and some correlated stories. One is here in the US, last week, I was watching the news, reading headlines, reading push alerts. And it was a little bit of a bipolar experience for Volodymyr Zelensky. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, Ukraine wants to be a member of NATO. They've wanted this for a very long time. Uh, They've gotten some murky assurances that it'll happen at some point. But, you know, Biden and other leaders said, not yet, not right now. Zelensky was angry about it. But then the next day he came out and said, we have all of these assurances uh, for military support. They obviously got cluster bomb munitions. How did the NATO summit play back over there? Like, does Ukraine feel bummed? (laughs) Totally. Yeah, of course. Uh, They feel like this war is going to go on forever unless they get real security assurances from the West. Because even if Putin stops and there's a peace deal or a ceasefire for a little while, Putin has no incentive to stick by it. Also, here's here's the thing, is what came out of the Vilnius summit 
I don't think is very different than what came out of Bucharest in 2008. It's this vague assurance that, yes, we'd like to see Ukraine and NATO at some point in the indeterminate, vague, gauzy future. And it leaves Ukraine in the worst possible position in that it is still wanting to be part of NATO, which angers Russia, but it never gets into NATO, thereby offering it the protection of NATO. Because notice Putin is clearly afraid to attack Poland and the Baltic states, even though there are people in Russia who would love to see nothing less than that. Mm-hmm. But he understands that getting into a war with NATO, actually, like an actual war, not a proxy war in Ukraine, but an actual war with NATO would be disastrous. And he would not be able to, really would not be able to control the outcome. Ukrainians understand that that is really the only way that this, even if they cede territory, that they would get any kind of security assurances. And and I agree with them. If you were to freeze the conflict in place and then admit Ukraine into NATO the way that uh, Finland was accepted into NATO, that would basically assure, I think, or as good as assure that Russia would not invade. This way, basically what they said in Vilnius was, We'd love to have you in NATO. You are so NATO. But as long as this war is going, we can't have you. You know, you guys have to you guys have to end this war or the war has to end and then we can really talk about it. What message does that send to Putin? That as long as this war, I mean, he doesn't want Ukraine to end up in NATO. So all he has to do is keep this war going indefinitely and then Ukraine will never join NATO. It has given him every incentive to keep the war going rather than to come to the negotiating table or to withdraw his troops. If anyone in Finland ever sees outgoing former Prime Minister Sanna Marin, who's now single, out at the bar, out at the festival, this is your pickup line. You are so NATO. Finland is in NATO. <laughs> Ukraine is not. Um, Julia, <laughs> thank you for outlining what's going on. We'll have you back on soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Eric Gardner is here to talk about the Hollywood Actors Union and their concerns about artificial intelligence. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy, taking over the anchor chair to talk to Puck's very own Eric Gardner. Hey, Eric. Hey, how's it going? Good. So, Eric, I really wanted to have you on today because you and I were just talking offline the other day about why artificial intelligence is actually such a big sticking point in the writer's strike and now the actor's strike in Hollywood. And I can sort of understand why writers are worried about AI, although Frankly, it's still sort of hard to imagine ChatGPT actually replacing a single working writer right now. I mean, I think, you know, if you can't write as well as a bot, maybe you're in the wrong business. But it's the Actors Guild that is really hyperventilating most recently about the possibility. Walk me through the top 
two or three scenarios that have got them so riled up? Yeah, I think basically there's an obvious answer to why they're so freaked out and a less obvious answer. The obvious answer is that this is technology that could simulate an actor. Everyone has seen these deep fakes. Using that same technology, you could possibly replace an actor, especially one without many speaking parts. The less obvious part of this whole thing is that I think this subject kind of threatens to divide the union at a time when solidarity is so important because AI means different things to different constituents within the membership. If you're a famous person, you might have the opportunity to license your face. If you're a little less famous but a great actor, AI probably doesn't mean so much right away. And if you're, you know, a background performer who has no lines and is just, you know, there for a split second on on screen, you know, AI truly represents some sort of existential threat. So the union is going to be very careful about this because they see this as an issue that, you know, there might you know, provoke people to have different feelings on the subject. And the, the other part of this is another thing that's not really well understood. It's that I'm not sure whether the guilds have really that much power to stop AI. There's only so much they can do about this subject. They can tighten up the language and the labor agreement to make sure that studios don't get away with overusing an actor's performance, that they don't feed actors' faces into the machines or that the studios don't own likenesses in perpetuity. But what's much harder is guaranteeing jobs. You know, they can't stop the studios from using AI. And so that's a tricky thing for the leadership position to be in right the second. Yeah, that was the piece of it that was totally the most fascinating for me. Like, I get the fear that say you you take a day job with Netflix or Paramount, you make a couple hundred bucks, and then the next thing you know, they've got your face and your likeness in perpetuity forever, scans and uploaded to some AI hive mind. Now they can reuse that for whatever they'd like. But I guess the thing that I'm really incredulous about, and, and to the point you were just making, is like, what is the point for the studios? Well, they already have the technology to create digital background actors. AI is just sort of a new manifestation of that technology. But I mean, it's, this is now decades old. Obviously, you watch the Lord of the Rings movies. They didn't actually have an army of 100,000 Urakai warriors. I mean, they were all digitally inserted in the background. And maybe one or two of them were, were made by actors who were wearing those um, motion camera suits. But for the most part, they're all digitally inserted. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that the studios have this technology. And not only do they have the technology, they have basically the required rights already. Or if they don't have the required rights, uh, it's not so hard to get. I mean, there are services out there that will license likenesses or faces or whatever along those lines. So it's not very hard for them to pull off. I think when, you know, this whole notion that studios are demanding this came out, everyone examined it under the framework of what does this mean for studios? You know, few people were analyzing it under what does this say about the about SAG-AFTRA? What does this say about the guild? And to me, what it says is that, you know, they're, you know, have a hot subject on, on hand. It's very explosive and there are a lot of political considerations and a lot of people who are on the picket lines right now who want to know that the guild is going to be negotiating for, um, for them, that they're going to improve their lives and improve their livelihoods. And it might not be so clear that that the guild is 
going to do that. So every once in a while, the guild needs to shout out uh, them. Um, they have to talk about the background performers and they have to, you know, try to, you know, convince them that, that they're working for them. <laughs> and whether or not their jobs can be saved, I'm a little skeptical of that. But, you know, in the, in the end, I guarantee you that whenever there's an agreement that's going to be made, they're going to say that they achieved something. They achieved resisting studio pressures to own likenesses in perpetuity. I think what is really going on here is politics. I mean, there have been, you know, constituencies within SAG Astro over the years that have been push and pull over their loyalties. And right now, I think the leadership has to remind everyone that, you know, AI is important and they're not going to let the studios bully them around and, you know, grab as much likeness rights as possible. And whether or not that, that really makes a difference or whether it's just kind of like a head fake, that's, I think, a discussion that we should all have. Yeah, I had been wondering why this issue was getting so much attention, why SAG-AFTRA was really putting it front and center. And then you made this point to me that, that really um, made everything fall into place, which is that, of course, the background actors make up a really sizable percentage of the voting base of this union. I mean, of course, the A-list actors get a lot of attention. And then we think about the B and the C-list working actors out there. But there are tens of thousands of people in Hollywood and, and elsewhere who in part make their living with these background roles. Yeah, definitely. I think that when we think about these actors, our minds automatically go to the most famous ones. They go to the ones we're pretty familiar with on screen. But there's so many actors out there in, in Hollywood who take day jobs, who don't do much, or who just appear in the background. Tens of thousands, you know, a high percentage. When these guild agreements get voted on, they usually pass by percentages around 98%, 99%. You know, if there's a substantial amount amount of the the guild that votes against it, that's going to look really bad for them. And they want to avoid that. They want everyone on the same page. They want to convince everyone that this is going to be progress for, for the entire membership. Whether it is or not, I, I don't know. But it's clear to me that you know some of these AI issues aren't going to be solved just by this singular labor deal. Eric, before I let you go, you had made a really interesting point to me the other day, and you wrote about this in your newsletter too, which is there are actually a lot of really interesting financial opportunities with AI that not everyone is thinking about. Obviously, you know, someone like Harrison Ford could license his likeness so that, you know, they could digitally insert him into a sixth Indiana Jones movie, regardless of whether he ever shows up on set. But as you noted, there, there may also be revenue opportunities for ordinary people to have their digital likeness inserted into movies. You or I could pay for our face to be put in the background of the next Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, funny enough, I started thinking about this during the pandemic when uh, all the fans for, for baseball games stopped going. And what the Dodgers did was something kind of fun and unique where they you know, allowed fans to basically buy cardboard cutouts that they put in the stands so that, you know, these fans could be at the games basically virtually. And, you know, to me, like the AI technology is getting to a place where, you know, if you want to be in like a Marvel blockbuster, uh, you know, maybe you can buy that right. And I see the background uh, scenery for these films as being, you know, a, a tremendous revenue opportunity for studios. They're hunting for cash right now. So why would they continue to pay background actors when they could maybe, you know, generate millions of dollars by, you know, going to Comic-Con and saying, you know, who wants to spend, you know, a couple hundred dollars and have your, you know, face in the, in the movie? I think that's uh, something that, that that's certainly going to be explored. 
Yeah, I mean, I actually think it's a brilliant idea. And if nobody is building that technology already, somebody should get on it. I think they'll find investors. So if you have any venture capitalists out there listening to the podcast who want to get in touch, reach out to Eric. Uh, I'm sure he'd be happy to license that idea to you. Eric, thanks so much for stopping by. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.